Hey, thanks for tuning in to High on Horror. I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. And this week, we are actually bringing you, finally, episode two of Where are the Monsters? And we're talking about my favorite Universal Monster movie, Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. We're going to talk about the novel, the original film, and some of the other movies in the series as well. Of course, before all that, we're going to have a smoke. (laughs) All that and more today on High on Horror. Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Alright, so uh before we get into the novel real quick, John, what are we smoking? You got some new shit for us today. Yeah, right? and I didn't even I didn't even look at the THC. I just got uh oh. It smells delicious. What's it called? Eighteen point two nine percent it's called cluster bomb. Cluster bomb, nice. It is a indica dominant hybrid. Yeah, you know, it's probably dominant, I like that. Dominator. Yeah. Uh it's a good thing I brought indica considering this is probably gonna be a long episode just from us writing it, but uh uh here we go we're just gonna fall asleep midway through but it's a <laughs> hybrid uh bred by bomb seeds the strain takes the sore and sativa effects of cinderella 99 i feel like we've had stuff that's been crossed with that before. agreed and crosses them with bomb number one a proprietary strain that bomb seeds uses to influence their genetics this blend is then crossed with the original skunk number one genetics from Sensei Seeds to give us cluster bomb. This sounds like a lot of like fucking going on. A lot of clusters going yeah. on here. A lot Maybe of that's why it's a cluster bomb. Yeah. <clears throat> it's known for producing large commercial yields of rich skunky buds that are sweetened by notes of strawberry and citrus. Yeah, it smells sweet. Like I said, it smells really good. Uh, the relaxing indica effects are balanced by the cerebral energy provided by Cinderella 99 genetics. That cerebral assassin shit. <laughs> Triple H. Triple Gape. <laughs> oh, why did I say that? Anyway, uh, feelings are hungry, focused, and sleepy. I don't know about focus because we smoked some and then I forgot I was supposed to get some pizza. And <laughs> here we are. But uh, it's apparently it'll make you feel paranoid, anxious, and dizzy. Uh, none of those are good <laughs> shit. I've never seen this listed on the flavors. One of them just says blue cheese. <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> I mean, if the, I don't think it tastes like blue cheese. I'd have smoked this half already. <laughs> and sweet and tropical. Apparently, it's uh, 26% of people said it helped with uh, the PTSD. Oh, nice. Okay, so it'll help me out a little bit. All we'll right. see Charlie on your six. Yeah, right. Yeah, man, so we're going to talk about the novel first. That's awesome. I, uh, I put a lot of, we both put a lot of work into this episode. Oh, man. And, uh, it's, I'm really, it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, hopefully you listeners out there, you know, are uh, relaxing right now and getting ready to, uh, you're getting ready to, to have a deep dive about everything Frankenstein. So relax and enjoy. John, and enjoy me off. probably mispronouncing people's names. But uh, yeah, the novel history, obviously Mary Shelley wrote the Arthur, wrote the Arthur. That's <laughs> interesting. Mary Shelley was the author of Frankenstein. Uh, she was born Mary Wollenstonecraft Godwin on August 30th, 1797 in London, England. She was the daughter of two prominent writers, Mary Wollenstonecraft. I th- I hope I'm saying I hope, that. I'm glad I don't have to say that. Wollstonecraft, this. maybe? I don't know. I should have I got those pronunciations on YouTube to tell me. Because that name is like, my name's fuck, last name's fucking crazy. That Wollstonecraft... Anyway, however, Mary Wollstonecraft died shortly after giving birth to her daughter, leaving William to raise Mary and her half-sister Fanny Imlay. They got some interesting last names, but I know I'm one to talk. Uh, Mary Shelley's early years were marked by tragedy and instability. She experienced the deaths of several family members and close friends, including her mother, as we talked about, half-sister and husband, the poet Percy. This is a beesh... Beesh. That was the one that bothered me. That's a beesh. Beesh. Yeah. Shelley. Uh, it was during the summer. It was during a summer trip to Switzerland with Percy and other writers that Mary conceived the idea for her most famous novel, Frankenstein. It was published in 1818. Frankenstein tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, a scientist who creates a monster from reanimated body parts. The novel explores themes of creation, ambition, 
and the consequences of playing God. It was met with both acclaim and controversy, and has since become a classic of Gothic literature. Mary Shelley continued to write throughout her life, publishing several other novels, short stories, and essays. She died on February 1, 1851, at the age of 53, from a suspected brain tumor. Her legacy, however, lives on through her enduring works of literature, including Frankenstein. Yeah, well said. You know, uh, no one who leaves a staple in this world, rather it's a skyscraper, a great political leader, a great movie or book, whatever. Whenever someone leaves a staple in this world, they never really die, you know, and uh, that's truly the key to immortality, if you ask me. And uh, had Mary lived longer, she'd be fucking blown away by how popular the book is, by how many people have read it. And of course, the films, you know, I mean, Mary had no idea the legacy that she was leaving behind, despite the book's success when she was living, you know, uh, like Edgar Allan Poe, she missed the peak of her fame and popularity. And I mean, the book is, I mean, pretty much a staple of a lot of high school uh, language art courses. I mean, I had to, I had to do it for uh, high school. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know if you had it. No, I, I read mine. I read it later on, just on my. But own. also, I think I also forgot to mention it was called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Mm. I think I left that second part off. Yeah, but that's definitely good to, good to know. But uh, Mary Shelley's famous novel, Frankenstein, has captivated readers for over 200 years at this point. <sighs> it's widely regarded as one of the earliest examples of science fiction and, a, like we said, a gothic masterpiece. The story of Frankenstein begins to take shape in the summer of 1816 when Mary and her future husband, Percy shelley were staying in switzerland with their friend lord byron and his physician john william poldori and uh, during this rainy summer the group entertained themselves by reading german ghost stories and discussing the nature of life one evening the conversation turned to the possibility of reanimating a corpse through electricity an idea that had been recently demonstrated through experiments with galvanism i wonder if they were high when they were having this conversation (laughs) smoking the weed that would be amazing, but uh, I don't. I don't think they had no cluster bomb though. <laughs> uh, Mary became fixated on this concept, and over the course of several weeks, she developed the idea for her own ghost story. Late one night, Mary's walking or walking waking dream <laughs> took shape, and she imagined the scene of a scientist, Victor Frankenstein, as he brought a creature to life using scientific methods. The creature was grotesque and ultimately caused destruction and tragedy. The story of Frankenstein with its themes of scientific advancement, hubris, and the consequences of playing God would become Mary's most famous work. And after returning to England, she spent two years writing and revisiting the manuscript, often in the midst of financial difficulty and personal tragedy, like we said uh She had all those deaths around her, and despite these challenges, Mary persevered in her writing, and Frankenstein was published anonymously in 1818, and like I said, a lot of death in her early life. She was only 21 at this point. Yeah, that's, yeah, a lot of tragedy. Uh, The novel was an instant success, and Mary's authorship was eventually revealed. It's since now become a cultural touchstone inspiring countless adaptations reimaginings and debates uh, de- debates did i say debates <laughs> i think so it's debates about the ethics of scientific advancement frankenstein reminds remains a testament to mary shelley's remarkable imagination and skill as a writer and a testament to the endured power of just a great story yeah absolutely um yeah, uh, I actually, I got my first copy of the Frankenstein novel in my Christmas stocking one year as a kid. Um, it was like a little pocket-sized version of the book, a little cheap kind of piece of shit version, a little $7 version, you know, but uh, I couldn't put it down, and I carried it with me, you know, everywhere I went. I read it every chance that I could, and uh, it didn't bore me or confuse my young mind like Bram Stoker's Dracula did. That was a fucking hurdle getting over that one, through that one, but um, Frankenstein yeah. invoked every emotion in me. I was sad, angry, a little scared. Everything, you know, in the everything. I felt everything. The novel is truly a masterpiece. Yeah, I never really got involved with the novel until high school when we did it. I don't know why I never really checked it out when I was younger. I always knew that the book was different than the movie, but yeah, yeah, I just never got around it to high school. And uh, the story follows Victor Frankenstein, a young scientist who creates a sentient being through a controversial scientific experiment. 
While traveling through Europe in 1815, uh, Shelley visited Gersheim, a town near Frankenstein Castle, where an alchemist had conducted experiments centuries before. Later, she and her companions journeyed to Geneva, Switzerland, where much of the story set. During her travels, Shelley was exposed to discussions of galvanism and the occult, which likely influenced the themes in her novel. Mm. Uh, interestingly, Shelley's inspiration for the novel came from a competition between her, her lover and future husband, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron to see who could write the best horror story. After thinking for days, Shelley was struck with the idea of a scientist who creates life, but he's horrified by his own creation, leading to the story of Frankenstein. While the novel contains elements of Gothic literature and Romanticism, some critics argue that it's the first true science fiction story. Unlike previous fantastical stories, the character of Victor Frankenstein actively seeks to achieve his incredible results through modern laboratory experiments. Uh, Frankenstein has had a significant impact on popular culture, inspiring countless horror stories, films, and plays. Uh, it's also worth noting the name of Frankenstein, as I'm sure you're well aware, is often mistakenly used to refer to the monster rather than its creator or, I guess you could say, father. Yeah, you know, uh, I try to not be pretentious, though, because, like, I do do that, too, you know, like, when I'm talking about the I movies. I do it, too. You know, I have corrected people, and then in the next breath, I call the monster and Frankenstein Frankenstein, and I'm like, God damn it, you know, like, uh, it's hard to not call him that, even, even when you know that's not his name, but uh, I like what you said about science fiction because i think when talking about the book and movies mm -hmm. that people get too caught up in the horror aspect to forget that it is actually a sci-fi story yeah. as well and you got a mad doctor in a lab making potions and elixirs and bringing pe dead people back to life it's a it's it's a sci-fi horror film through and through and or story i mean and it uh it, it starts off science fiction and kind of turns essentially into a zombie film yeah a and story it, <laughs> and i'm 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 sure you probably do the same thing when i talk to somebody and I'm talking about Frankenstein. I'll talk about the monster and I'll say Frankenstein. And then I'll immediately go, well, not Frankenstein, the monster. Like I always yeah, end up yeah. correcting myself. Right. All right. Now that we got the novel out of the way, let's talk about the original movie before we get the bride. We're, we're, I feel like this monster series has really given us the chance to really dig in deep. That's what she said. But, uh, <laughs> Like, it gives us a chance, rather than just looking at Bride, we're going to give you, you know, the novel Frankenstein, we're going to cover the original Frankenstein movie, and uh, Frankenstein came out in 1931, it's a horror film, sci-fi, uh, gothic, I mean, it's got a lot of different uh, labels you can put it under. Uh, it was directed by James <coughs> Whale. Sorry. Damn, Drew over here dying. <laughs> Damn, Drew, Drew just don't want me to talk. I bet. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, it was a 1931 horror movie directed by James Whale and produced by Carl Lamell Jr. The movie was adapted from Peggy Webling's 1927 play, which was based off of the 1818 novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus from Mary Shelley. The screenplay was written by Francis Edward Fargo and Garrett Fort. Uh, with uncredited contributions from Robert Flory and John Russell, while the Webling play was adapted by John L. Balderston. And uh, the film's plot follows Henry Frankenstein, changed from Victor in the novel, played by Colin Clive, an obsessed scientist who, with his assistant Fritz, played by Dwight Fry, collects body parts from corpses and assembles them into a living being. The resulting creature, commonly known as Frankenstein's monster, is played by Boris Karloff. The makeup for the monster was provided by Jack Pierce. Alongside Clive and Karloff, the film's cast also include Mae Clark, John Bowles, and Edward Van Sloan. And upon its release, Frankenstein was a commercial success. It received positive reviews from both audience and critics. And it was distributed by Universal Pictures and has had a significant impact on popular culture. Uh, with the imagery of the mad scientist and a subservient assistant in the film's depiction of Frankenstein's monster have all become iconic. The movie spawned sequels and spinoffs, and in 1991, the United States Library of Congress selected the film for preservation in the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Halloween. Uh, yeah, Halloween yeah, I always, love, right I, I, I always love to throw that out there, that Halloween's in there. Halloween's in there right there next to it. It's beautiful. And uh, the movie's plot is a, 
little bit different than the novel. It's set in the Bavarian Alps where Henry Frankenstein and his assistant Fritz, a hunchback, pieced together a human body using parts from freshly buried corpses and recently hanged criminals. In his laboratory built inside a watchtower, Henry aspires to create a living being using electrical devices. However, he needs a brain for his creation, and he sends Fritz to steal one from his former teacher, Dr. Walderman's class. Unfortunately, Fritz accidentally damages a healthy brain, and so he brings Henry the corrupted brain of a criminal. I, I, find, I find that funny. It's just because he has the criminal's brain. That's what that's what <laughs> fucked it all up. Yeah. Uh, Henry's fiance Elizabeth, played by May Clark, and his friend Victor are concerned about his behavior and ask Walderman to help. They arrive at the lab just as Henry makes his final preparations and a storm rages. He raises the operating table towards an opening at the top of the tower, exposing the creature and his equipment to the lightning storm and bringing the monster to life. Although grotesque in form, Frankenstein's monster appears to be innocent and childlike. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of the most iconic scenes in cinema history, really. Yep. Yeah. I mean, even if people haven't even seen the movie, they, they know the scene when they see it. They know it, yeah. Everybody's seen that scene. After the monster is chained in the dungeon and Fritz antagonizes <laughs> it with a torch, it breaks free and kills Wal Walderman. Uh, the monster escapes, and during its wanderings, it meets a young girl named Maria, whom it accidentally drowns while playing a game. Uh, the incident leads to a lynch mob searching for the monster. Uh, the plot reaches its climax when the monster attacks and kidnaps Henry, and the villagers set a windmill on fire with the monster trapped inside. Ultimately, Henry is rescued, and the monster is destroyed. Uh, Frankenstein has become a classic horror movie with its portrayals of a scientist playing God by creating life and the unintended consequences of his actions. Its influence on popular culture has been significant, inspiring countless adaptations and spinoffs across various media, and it remains a celebrated work of American cinema. I mean, testament that it's in the Library of Congress. Yeah, man, the original film stole my heart. You know, I watched it so many times. Uh, it's such a dark and tragic story, you know, and uh, Frankenstein is the perfect example of what happens when, man's, when man decides to play God. It, it never works out. But with Frankenstein and its sequel, what's unique is that you don't just see how playing God works, for the, works out for the victims of the monster. You see how playing God actually affects the monster slash creation of Victor Frankenstein. Yeah. The monster is a victim as well. He means no harm. He didn't ask to be made or for any of it. You know, he's like a kid. He just wants to have a good time and then sees how ugly humanity can be and it turns him sour. And the way society treats him isn't unlike the way people would react today. If we found out that someone created a human life like that, you know, everyone would fear it and they should because it's not natural. All right, we're going to get into a little background here for Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, as early as the preview screenings of the 1931 Frankenstein film, Universal Studios considered creating a sequel. In order to accommodate this idea, the film's original ending was changed so that Henry Frankenstein would survive. At first, James Whale, the director of the first film, refused to direct the sequel, feeling that he exhausted the concept. Kurt Newman was slated to take his place, but instead filmed The Black Cat. However, after the success of The Invisible Man, producer Carl Lamell Jr. realized that Whale was the only suitable director for the sequel, and Whale convinced the studio to let him make One More River. Whale believed that the sequel would not surpass the original, so he decided to make it a memorable hoot. Whale said he wanted you to forget reality for an hour. He and the Universal Studios psychiatrist determined that the monster would have the mental age of a 10-year-old boy and the emotional age of a teenager. Screenwriter Robert Flory wrote the treatment, calling the new adventure called it the new adventures of Frankenstein. The monster lives early in 1932, but it was rejected without comment. That is a ridiculously long title. <laughs> the new adventures of Frankenstein. The monster lives, and it sounds like a 90s like TV cartoon superhero show. Like the new adventures of Frankenstein. Yeah, new, yeah I, I don't like it at all. <laughs> that sounds that yeah that was a terrible title. Uh, Universal staff writer Tom Reed later wrote the treatment titled The Return of Frankenstein, which was eventually accepted in 1933. Reed then wrote the full script that passed its review by the Hayes office, which was our precursor to the MPAA. Uh, but Whale was dissatisfied with it. 
Uh, the project went through several other writers before John L. Balderston returned to an incident from the novel in which the creature demands a mate. Wales said playwright William J. Hurlbut, that sounds terrible, and Edmund Pearson to work on the final script, which was submitted for review in November of 1934. And during production, Whale decided that the same actress to play the bride should also play Mary Shelley in the film's prologue to represent how horror stems from the darker aspects of the imagination. After considering Bridget Helm and Phyllis Brooks, he chose Elsa Lanchester for the role. Lanchester, who had accompanied her husband Charles Lawton to Hollywood, had not had much success in the industry. She modeled the bride's hissing on the hissing of swans and gave herself a sore throat during filming. Sources vary on whether Bella Lugosi or Claude Rains were considered for the role of Pretorius, Frankenstein's mentor, mentor, or if the role was created specifically for Ernest Thesinger. Due to May Clark's illness, Valerie Hobson replaced her as Henry Frankenstein's love interest, Elizabeth. James Whale would only do the film if Universal agreed to do it on his ter his terms. And uh, one of his terms was that uh, if Elsa didn't play the role of the bride, he was not going to do the movie. And uh, he was set on the idea of having her play the role, and he was right, you know. And uh, also, Whale got to go ham on the budget due to the success he'd garnered since the first film. He basically was given carte blanche, and uh, like you said, no one knows for sure if the role of Pretorius was specifically designed for Ernest or not. All we do know is that the character was James Whales' invention while developing the script. And uh, rumors do say that Claude Rains was originally going to play the part of Pretorius. But like you said, Ernest, Ernest uh, Thessinger, Thess Thessinger was uh, James Whales' real-life theatrical mentor, actually. So who knows what was originally supposed to have gone on and who was supposed to have the Damn, role. Damn, he was going meta. But uh, I, can't, I can't think of... Uh, you know, I think we can all agree that it worked out the way it should have. Yeah. As I say, uh, James Whale was meta back in 1935. <laughs> yeah, like right. He has his real-life mentor playing the main uh, character's mentor. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, meta. it seems like Hollywood <clears throat> seems to always operate as, and has always operated on the principle that if you bring us money, we'll let you do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh... Yeah, both uh, Colin Clive and Boris Karloff returned to their roles from the original Frankenstein film, portraying the creator and the creation, respectively. Despite Clive's worsening alcoholism, director James Whale chose not to recast him as he felt that Clive's hysterical quality was essential for the film. However, Karloff strongly opposed the decision to allow the monster to speak, believing that the character's impact and charm came from his inarticulacy. I said that so badly. Inarticulous. I... Inarticulacy. See? There it's a go. tough one. <laughs> Thank you. This change in the script also meant that Karloff could not remove his dental plate, resulting in his cheeks lacking the sunken appearance from the previous film. And to select the monster's limited vocabulary, Whale and the studio's psychiatrist analyzed the test papers of 10-year-old children working at the studio. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And uh, Do you really think... I'm sorry to cut you off, ahead. but do you really think a studio today would allow a horror movie to do that much to like go hot? They would no. even just hire a psychiatrist. Yeah, right. No, they wouldn't. No, definitely not. Horror is too low budget. Like even though uh, it was genre back then, it was still like, they still considered it like, you know, uh, they still treated it with respect, which horror doesn't get a lot of respect. But, um, you know, I wanted to say that uh, Colin Clive died two years after uh bride came out due to his alcohol abuse, which you mentioned. And, uh, while Whale died about 22 years after this film released from suicide, he yeah. uh, unfortunately had a series of strokes, and uh, that led to him taking his own life. And uh, also, what you said about Karloff's dental plate is true, but uh, he didn't speak in the first film, so no biggie. Yeah. But how did they expect him to speak in the sequel without his dental plate? I imagine that would have been really <laughs> yeah. hard for him to understand, hard to uh, for the audience to understand him when he spoke, you know. But um, he also didn't have a sunken in face because he had gained weight since the first film. If you look, he's a lot scrawnier in the original film, and that's because and now he swole. Yeah, and that's because he was broke, you know. And after the success of mm -hmm. after the success of Bride. Uh, the, or after the success of the first film, I mean, the poor guy, you know, could afford to eat. So, you know, he put on some weight and, uh, Coke and steaks all th day that contributed to his uh, face being fuller and why, uh, you know, all around he looks more, you know, beefy and menacing Damn in the sequel. Beefy. 
My man, my man looking beefy. <laughs> Dwight Fry, uh, who played the hunchback Fritz in the original film, returned to play the doctor's assistant Carl, and also filmed scenes as an unnamed villager and nephew Glutz, a man who Glutz. Bl- Glutz. Glutzy. <laughs> a man who uh, blamed the monster for his uncle's murder. Uh, Karloff is only credited as Karloff. Which is a common practice during his career peak. Damn, my man out here like like Sting, <laughs> yeah, right, like Bono. He's just <laughs> Karloff. Elsa Lanchester pr- portrayed, as we said, both Mary Shelley and the Bride, uh, with the later sporting an iconic conical hairstyle with white streaks inspired by Nefertiti. A universal makeup addict. Addict. (laughs) Oh, wow. That was a bad one. Universal makeup artist Jack Pierce altered the monster's appearance to include scars and shorter hair, indicating the after effects of the mill fire scene in the previous film. Uh, He also modified the monster's makeup to show his injuries healing as the film progressed. And uh, Pierce collaborated with Whale on the bride's makeup and hairstyle, which Lanchester found uncomfortable to wear. I mean, that doesn't look like... It was, I mean, the way the hair is, there's no way it looks like there was fun. that was fun. There had to be so much, you know, just shit mm-hmm. in there. Uh, For sure. Her Mary Shelley costume was a white net dress embroidered with sequins of butterflies, stars, and moons, which reportedly took 17 women 12 weeks to make. Oh, uh, damn. And uh, I wanted to elaborate on what you said about Dwight Fry. Um the scene in the film where the monster asks the gypsies for food and they all like run off, you know, and like terrified. Yeah. That was a rewrite. The original scene that you were referring to, that was originally supposed to be a subplot where Fritz, Dwight Fry, um, killed his aunt and uncle and blamed it on the monster. And I, again, Damn, I don't know where that would have fit into the movie. I just feel again that it was one of those scenarios where everything worked out the way it should have. Yeah. I don't think that that would have that that would helped the that movie. I don't think that needed. There was no point. It doesn't add or take away anything in Agreed. the film. Agreed. Uh, during and after its production, Bride of Frankenstein faced censorship from various national and local boards. The Hayes office lead censor, Joseph Breen, objected to lines in the scripts that compared Henry Frankenstein's work to God's, as well as a planned shot of the monster rushing to a crucified Jesus and attempting to rescue the figure from the cross. I want to know how that was fit into the film, because that just seems so out of place that Jesus is just going to appear. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, uh, Breen also... Uh, Breen also advised Whale to reduce the number of murders seen or implied by the script. After viewing the film, the censorship board required the number of cuts, including deleting a sequence in which Dwight Fry's character kills his uncle and mm-hmm. shots of Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley with too much of her breast visible. Damn, missed that one. <laughs> Despite his earlier objections, Breen had no issues with the... <laughs> cruciform imagery throughout the film uh, the presence of pretorius as a coded homosexual and the approval of the film on april 15 with the production code seal however censorship boards in ohio england china trinidad palestine and hungary challenged the film for various reasons including objections to the scene in which the monster gazes upon the body intended for the bride with some fond uh reminiscence of necrophilia yeah and uh to be clear there are 15 minutes of cuts to be exact man i would love to have uh i would love to see that footage 15 minutes that's a lot of footage i'm sure for a movie like that. i gotta imagine that's all lost now I'm unfortunately sure. yeah uh there are two popular interpretation theories uh for bride of frankenstein and it's funny because i feel like uh a lot of times people would find these on the opposite ends uh christian imagery and queer reading uh, the film contains several instances of Christian imagery, including the monster in a crucifix pose, a crucified figure of Jesus in the graveyard, and the monster consuming Christian sacraments of bread and wine. While some scholars suggest the monster is a Christ figure, others argue that the monster is a mockery of the divine. Hmm. And on the other hand, modern film scholars have noted the possible queer reading of the film particularly in the character of Pretorius and his relationship with Henry. When analyzing Pretorius, a character in the film, gay film historian Vito Russo refrained from explicitly labeling him as gay. Instead, he referred to him as, quote, sissified, which was a Hollywood euphemism for homosexuality. Uh, Pretorius represents a, quote, gay mythopolis. I always struggle with that one. Uh, 
serving as a seductive figure who tempts Frankenstein into engaging in the creation of non-procreative life. In one instance, Pretorius interrupts Frankenstein's wedding night to persuade him to participate in this act. The implication of Pretorius's homosexuality is more apparent in a novelization of the film published in the United Kingdom, where Pretorius explicitly states that he has no choice but to pursue the scientific means of procreation. Some scholars perceive a gay subtext suffused throughout the film, including the monster's sexuality, quote, unsettled and bisexual affection for the male hermit and the female bride. I don't know that I got that for the male hermit myself, but... Uh, however, Whale's biographer rejects the notion that Whale would have identified with the monster from a homosexual perspective, stating that Whale was an artist, not a gay artist. Harrington, a friend and confidant of Wales, also dismissed the homosexuality interpretation as, quote, pure bullshit, and stated that Wales' film represents the work of an artist, not a gay artist. Uh, gay, not gay, you know, it, it doesn't matter. The movie rocks, you know. I and, never uh, really noticed it myself, but. I love to watch and analyze movies as much as any, any movie nerd does. You know, you know that, you know, I get off on that looking for hidden shit or picking up on like, you know, social commentaries. I dig that stuff. I love that stuff. But yeah, um, you know, sometimes you, you got to call bullshit. And I never saw anything openly gay in The Bride of Frankenstein. Honestly, you know, in film, whenever two males or females get along, there's always going to be someone that looks too much into that and tries to make more of it than there should be, or at least open the doors to that being a possibility. And that's fine. But for this movie, nothing to me says that James Whale was trying to make a gay movie with tons of gay overtones. If you want to look at it that way or take that away from it, I guess you certainly can choose to look at it that way. But if you take the movie at face value, I, I really don't think it's trying to do anything but tell a monster story. Yeah, um, and just to be clear, the the whole artist, not a gay artist, James Whale was gay. Yeah, but correct. they were the the I I don't want to speak for them, but what I think they're trying to say is that he was a gay artist, but his work wasn't to represent yeah, his he wasn't homosexuality. To let, let, let it leak into his work and make necessarily like you know. But uh, uh yeah. I mean. To me, the Christian imagery is a thousand percent in there. Oh, uh, yeah, which, for sure. Uh, which has helped cause it so many problems with censorship when it was trying to get made. Right. Well, I guess after it was made, but when it was trying to get released. All right, now let's get into the plot of Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, the movie opens with Mary Shelley, as we said, played by Elsa Lanchester, telling Lord Byron and her husband, Percy Shelley, the story of her novel Frankenstein, which she describes as a nightmare. Byron praises her work but suggests that the tale is incomplete and she should write a sequel. The story then shifts to the aftermath of the first film, Dr. Henry Frankenstein, having survived his ordeal with the monster, played by Boris Karloff, is recovering from his injuries at home. His fiancée Elizabeth is relieved that he has given up his experiments and plans to marry him soon. Trying to move on with life. He was trying to move on. However, Frankenstein soon visited by his former mentor, the sinister Dr. Pretorius. Dun, dun, dun. Pretorius has developed a fascination with creating life and urges Frankenstein to join him in his pursuit. Frankenstein initially refuses, but he's intrigued when Pretorius reveals that he has successfully created miniature Hamanaculi. <laughs> Hamanculi. I don't know how to say that. You, you don't know how to say it either, right? No. <laughs> A monoculi. A monoculi? I don't know. A monoculi, yeah. I think that might be a it. A monoculi, yeah. Damn. Pretorius proposes that the two scientists collaborate to create a female companion for the Frankenstein for Frankenstein's monster. My question is like, did they think they'd really be able to like procreate? I don't I hate to get vulgar here. That's a lie. I don't really mind. But like, what if his dick just fall off and like even even if his dick doesn't fall off, even if the dick's strong, the, the nut's dead. The nut's uh, that's, dead that was going to be my next question. I was going to be like, can he be making baby batter? Just uh, cold, distilled baby ooh, batter? I don't think distilled. it works like that. How's it, where's it getting distilled? <laughs> no, I'm moving on. They got a lot of vials and jars in that laboratory, okay. man. You don't but know. But I don't, distilled's weird. I'm moving on. <laughs> Meanwhile, the monster's still alive and wandering the countryside. Uh, he is hunted and shot at by villagers, but he survives and continues to roam. Eventually takes refuge in the abandoned windmill where the first movie ended. Uh, the creature is dead and brought back to life, and then he's crucified. The film debuted on Good Friday, and also it was on 420. <laughs> uh, this is 
and this is also not the only Christian references in the film. The monster is portrayed as a saintly figure in this film. Uh, he's kind of like a New Testament type of character. And then uh, that night, following the sounds of a violin playing Ave Maria, the monster encounters an old blind hermit who thanks God for sending him a friend. He teaches the monster words like friend and good and shares a meal with him. Also, he gets the monster to smoke a backwoods. And he tucks him in for a nice little nap. Yeah. He just cracking them backwoods, just puffing with them. <laughs> and then uh, fucking two hunters stumble upon him, break up the smoke sesh. They recognize the monster. He attacks him and accidentally burns down the cottage as the hunters lead the hermit away. Uh, this is important because it makes the monster very sympathetic here. And essentially showing you again that everything he touches dies in one way or another or gets destroyed. And uh, we were watching a commentary for this. You uh, pointed out something that why is it the only person that's ever nice to him is the one that can't actually see him. Yeah. Well, still, you ain't going to feel them slimy ass hands. And them, them, them big scars and, and staples. Fucking, and, and fucking grub diggers. Right. That Grinch voice. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do the Grinch yet, I'm joking. Frank, Frankenstein is initially reluctant to pursue the idea of creating a new creature, but his obsession takes over and he begins to gather body parts for the project. He employs the help of Carl, a sinister henchman who helps him rob graves and kidnaps a young girl named Elsa. I don't know why, now after watching, you'll understand this, watching them dig up in the graveyard, Nicole looked at me. All I thought of was uh, um, Saving Silverman. <laughs> when he's like, hand me a crowbar. And he opens and goes, oh. He goes, what? He's like, his dead chick is stacked. That's all I ever <laughs> think of. Every time they go, and I watch Bride, Bride of Frankenstein now. That's great. I uh, love Saving Silverman. Uh, the creature, or I'm sorry, the creation of the new monster is slow and a difficult process with Frankenstein struggling to bring her to life. The original monster who has taken up residence in the windmill becomes aware of the new creation and approaches Frankenstein, demanding that he create a mate for him. Frankenstein refuses, and the monster vows to destroy him and everything he loves. Uh, the new monster is eventually brought to life, and she's strikingly beautiful, with Elsa Lanchester uh, playing the monster's mate. Uh, however, the female monster is initially terrified and confused, recoiling from the monster and Frankenstein who created her. And the climax of the movie sees the monster from the first film break into the laboratory and confront Frankenstein and his creation. The female monster is repulsed by the original monster, and he responds by destroying the laboratory at himself along with Dr. Pretorius. As the laboratory burns to the ground, Frankenstein and Elizabeth are rescued. Somehow this fucker gets out of everything. <laughs> right, right. He's just causing problems all the time, but yet he gets to keep living. Elusive as hell, man. Yeah, they drive off into the sunset, vowing to leave their old lives behind. However, as they drive away, a mob of angry villagers approach, foreshadowing the possibility of the future horrors to come. Uh, the film's ending in which the bride rejects the monster and he destroys the laboratory was not the original ending. Uh, the studio had originally planned to have the monster and the bride survive and escape together, but they changed at the last minute, and uh, I think the change is better, in my opinion. I Usually a lot of times you have these like endings, they switch last minute, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it, it, we uh, Way better ending with them dying, for sure. It's, it's far more poetic, but... Uh, Let's be, sure. let's be realistic here. The monster got out as well. We didn't see it, but the monster lived. He changed his name to Herman, moved to Mockingbird <laughs> Lane, and he married Lily. That's what happened to Frankenstein, if you yeah. really want to know. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bride of Frankenstein is a haunting and unforget for forgivable, unforgettable <laughs> horror classic that has stood the test of time. The movie definitely <laughs> explores themes of science, humanity and the dangers of playing god while also delivering plenty of thrills and chills the film's striking visuals atmospheric score and excellent performances from all the cast contribute to an immersive and unforgettable experience yeah as uh, joe dante the director of the howling and gremlins he said it best quote 
Never before has a studio lavished so much imagination and acting talent on a monster movie, end quote. That is probably the best phrase I've ever heard about that movie. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's a way to sum it up, right? Yeah. Uh, and one of the film's most memorable aspects is the relationship between the two monsters. While the original monster is a terrifying and menacing force, he's also a tragic and sympathetic figure. The new female monster is similarly fascinating, and her creation is one of the most memorable and visually stunning scenes in film. I mean, comparable to the original. Yeah, right. And uh, Ernest Thesinger as Dr. Pretorius is a standout performance. Uh, Ernest delivers a delightfully creepy and eccentric performance that adds an extra layer of menace to the film. One of his most memorable lines comes early in the film when he tells Frankenstein to a new world of gods and monsters. The character of Dr. Pretorius was not in Mary Shelley's original novel and was created specifically for the film and uh, intends to serve as a foil for Dr. Frankenstein. And, uh, I mean, if we're talking standout performances, obviously, uh, he just goes by the one name, Karloff, yeah. as the monster. Despite having very little dialogue, Carl imbues the character with a sense of pathos and emotion that is, I mean, pretty remarkable. And, like, I think the other thing that gets overlooked is how well this holds up. And it's from 1933, and we're really only into speaking films, what, 10, 15 years, really, as mainstream? So, yeah, I mean, right. it's, people are still finding their way at this point yeah. in, the, in the industry, still. And uh, one of his most memorable scenes comes when he meets the blind hermit who teaches him to speak, gives him the... You know, a brief sense of companionship. The scene's both touching and heartbreaking, akin to the scene with the little girl in the OG film. Uh, Carlaw's performance is obviously a highlight. Yep. And, uh, of course, the film's most iconic scenes, the climatic confrontation between the two monsters. The dialogue in the scene is minimal, but powerful, culminating in the line, We belong dead. Uh, this line is spoken by the original monster, it's both tragic and cathartic, bringing the film's themes of creation and destruction to a conclusion. Uh, overall, Brad Frankenstein is a horror classic. It's earned its place in cinematic history. Unforgettable performances, still stunning visuals, a timeless story. It's a must-see for any fan of the horror genre. 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's a 10 out of 10 for me as well. And uh, there's nothing I would change about it, even even its short runtime, because I think nothing that helps feels it. left out. Yeah, there's no need for more. The story comes full circle to a tragic and unforgettable conclusion. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we reviewed this movie, because as of right now, there's no other Universal films that we have, classic films, that we have planned to review this season. So I'm glad we did the best one as our episode. You know, uh, because even though Brian, Josh says it's a creature from the Black Lagoon, he wrong. Yeah, Bride is Bride is a crowning it's good, achievement. But is, he's is, wrong. Yeah, Bride is a crowning achievement for sure on Universal for Horror. Sure. And uh, when I was a when I was a child, I used to love Creature from the Black Lagoon. I used to think it was my favorite movie because it was my favorite monster design. But as I got older, I realized that I liked the story of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein more. I related more to the monster. And uh, there are moments in other Universal monster movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon that wowed me. Moments. But the entire movie of Bride of Frankenstein wowed me. And it's an absolute, it's absolutely beautiful and perfect. It's the ultimate society versus a nonconformist individual movie. And that rare occasion where the sequel blows the original out of the water even when the original was a great movie. All right, now I'm going to take this episode in the direction of sequels and remakes. Let's talk about sequels for a moment now. To date, there's nearly 70 films with Frankenstein's monster. Holy in it. shit! Yeah, and there's 70 <laughs> over 70. There's no films. way. Not if Frankenstein told, movies, okay. but movies with the monster in it. Still, if you told me movies, uh, I guess. I mean, I guess it's probably can, an, counting animated. You know what? You know what? Now, now that I think about it, there's always like you have sometimes little cameos from Frankenstein. I'm thinking yeah. initially. I'm thinking of like not his movie, but still like a main character. But now that I think about it, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and they're still making Frankenstein movies to this day. You know, there's and no I thought way. I had a band with Pumpkinhead and all those sequels. <laughs> yeah, there's no way we can cover all these movies. And truthfully, uh, a lot of them are forgettable, honestly. You know, um, the most recent ones that are somewhat memorable, if only due to big promotional campaigns, 
are I, Frankenstein from 2014, starring Two-Face, Aaron Eckhart, and uh, Victor Frankenstein from 2015, starring Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe, and James McAvoy. Um, now, of course, there's a brand new Frankenstein film coming from G- director Guillermo del Toro. I'm excited for that. Yes, and as of now, Andrew Garfield is being cast as the monster. No, you, no news yet on when this will be released, but I know that... Uh, Guillermo del Toro has wanted to do a Frankenstein movie for a long time, and if there's anyone I trust with the source material, it's him. And I can't wait because uh, Oscar Isaac is cast as Victor Frankenstein, and Mia Goth is she playing. She's gonna be She's gonna <laughs> she's gonna be playing the uh, doctor's love interest. Libbiff. Um, and this will be a Netflix original, by the way. Oh <laughs> no, no, no! That's not so bad. You know, Guillermo gets creative control that way. So I guess wasn't wasn't uh, the Irishman. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that Netflix. That was Netflix, yeah. They're not all terrible. Okay. But um but I wasn't a big fan of uh The Shape of Water. And I didn't was, like The Shape of Water either. I wasn't And that a fan was basically that. his version of Creature from the Black Lagoon if they took him out of the lagoon. It was Creature from the Black Lagoon, but it was Abe Sapien from Hellboy. <laughs> he was like he was like yeah, I wasn't a fan of that it one was either. It was okay. But uh hopefully he'll do a good job with this. Yeah. But um, um yeah. we were talking about all like you know the seventy movies and shit uh that for the monsters and what's your favorite uh movie with Frankenstein's monster in it like not necessarily a Frankenstein movie but a movie that where Frankenstein's in it like for me I think mine's the uh, old uh, puppet movie Mad Monster Party oh I was gonna say uh, Van Helsing. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Okay, fair I, enough. I watched that so much as a kid. Fair enough. Okay, that's pretty good. But um, yeah, back to the classics. Um, so uh, Three Musketeers director Roland V. Lee took over directing the third film in the Frankenstein series called Son of Frankenstein in 1939. Son of Frankenstein would be Karloff's last time wearing the makeup and scars of the monster. The Wolfman himself, Lon Chaney Jr., took over the role of the monster for the fourth film, The Ghost of Frankenstein, with an underwhelming performance. The fifth film in the Frankenstein series, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, puts Lon Chaney Jr. back into the fur of the Wolfman and puts Dracula's Bella Lugosi in the role of the monster. They're just tag-teaming out of this role left and right Dude, here. I mean, yeah, I remember my dad was, like, telling me, I was like, wait, so Dracula and the Wolfman at some point also played Frankenstein? Like- <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, underwhelming performance, but a fun movie for young kids. Um, in the sixth film, House of Frankenstein, we see Glenn Strange take over the role of the monster, but Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., and Bela Lugosi all have roles in that movie, so it's worth checking out. And uh, Glenn Strange finished out the role of the monster with the final two films, House of Dracula and, like you just mentioned, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's a terrible movie, but I, I enjoyed it so much as a kid watching that movie. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, I, I like it. It's bad, but it's it's bad, but it's good. It's, it's one of those. But... um. Now's where I want to take a moment to stray away from Universal and talk about the Hammer film productions because whenever you bring up Frankenstein, there's always, just like with Dracula, there's the Hammer versions, the Universal versions. It'd be a sin to not talk about Hammer here if we were mentioning Frankenstein films. So uh, Hammer Films is the British production company of genre films that was founded in 1934. In the 1950s through the 1970s was the peak of popularity for their films, and in this time they took over the reins of Frankenstein after Universal had them, and pumped out several of, seven of their own Frankenstein movies from 1957 to 19, 1974. The Curse of Frankenstein, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Evil of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Created Woman, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, The Horror of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. John, have you seen any of the uh, Hammered uh, Frankenstein films? I have not. No? Okay. No. I was going to ask you which one was your favorite one. No, I haven't seen any any of the Hammer. I've seen the ha- some of the Hammer Draculas, but none of the Frankenstein. They're incredibly low budget, you know, and uh, a lot of the makeup looks really bad. Like, it looks like Mod Podge I've or Paper seen, Mache. I've like, covers, and I thought the fr- uh, monster looked terrible. Yeah, yeah, they clearly didn't have the means that Universal did for their Frankenstein movies, but the Hammer films were good nonetheless, you know, and the best part about them for me was legendary Peter Cushing plays Victor Frankenstein in the series, and he plays the role with such an arrogance that you want to fucking bitch slap him, you know, he's he's completely out of his mind, way worse off than Colin (laughs) Clive's version, and uh, we get to see Frankenstein slip further into insanity with every film, and uh, my favorite in the series is uh, The Curse of Frankenstein, the first 
one. Christopher Lee actually plays the monster in that one and does a good job. Um, probably the best since Karloff, but uh, I really like Frankenstein Created Woman as well and uh, Frankenstein and the Monster That sounds like hell. such a terrible title, though. <laughs> Frankenstein Created Woman. Yeah, and uh, but, but interesting enough, Peter Cushing plays Victor Frankenstein in all of the movies but one, the horror of Frankenstein, and uh, the, the monster actors vary as the series goes on. It sounds like they're really just whoring out Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in that time period. Yeah, that's yeah. They were taking, they were happy to take the roles though, <laughs> you know. But uh, other movies that were substantial that year um, was uh, I, I got to say that there was no other horror movies to rival Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I would have really expected. And you know, yeah, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, The Thirty Nine Steps was a huge success, but it's a spy movie, not relevant to horror. Some other uh, big movies that came out that year are A Night at the Opera and Triumph of the Will and a bunch of other shit that I haven't seen or heard of. Um, I so, haven't yeah, Bride was seen unrivaled. them, but I'm familiar with Triumph of the Will. I've heard of that one, actually. I haven't heard of them, heard of them or seen them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess uh, we finally got through Bride of Frankenstein. That was a lot of history. Yeah. It was. I love talking about it, though. Yeah, Bride of Frankenstein was not a commercial success when it was first released, but I mean, obviously, it's become a classic of the horror genre. If we're if we're talking talking about it almost ninety years later, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's widely regarded as one of the greatest, not just horror sequels, just greatest sequels ever made, up there with you know Godfather Two and shit like that. John Wick Four, <laughs> John, and John Wick Four, and uh, you know Fast Five. Um, <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> We're joking about that shit. <laughs> uh, just because you don't always find your audience right away doesn't mean they aren't there. I think that's true of so many horror classics. Yeah, just ask John Carpenter. Um, you know, besides Halloween, I don't know if that guy's ever made a movie that had an immediate audience. Um, even The Thing took time to catch on, which is mind blowing. You know, uh, yeah, The Thing. Uh, I've re I've read reviews from initial reviews, and like even people like that uh, smug fuck Roger Ebert had to go back and like reevaluate and be like, hey, I was wrong about The Thing. Sometimes movies are just ahead of their time, and uh, I think that this that was the case with The Bride. Yeah. So uh, yeah, next week. Uh, we are going to be bringing you back an interview episode. We are going to be talking about The Outwaters with Robbie Banfitch, who wrote, directed, and starred in the film. And uh, make sure to follow us online at High on Horror 420 on uh, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, uh, whatever the fuck. I'm missing one. OnlyFans. But yeah, our OnlyFans. It's uh, 19.99 a month, but if you enter promo code HOA, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> You get to see John try on our merchandise. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, we're going to be rich. Um, <laughs> anyway, High on Horror 420, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, send us your PPA questions at uh, highonhorror420 at gmail.com. Check out our website, highonhorror.com. And uh, as we sign off, I will leave you with a quote from the film. It speaks volumes of the story's themes of hubris, creation, destruction, and it's a poignant reminder that playing God can have tragic consequences. We belong dead. Catch you later. See you next week.